All right. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Well, yes and amen. Good morning, Westside. We are glad that you're here. And um, let me just say, um, on behalf of the staff um, and everybody, thank you guys so much um, for loving us and um, taking care of us. It's just crazy that this is what we get to do uh, for a living with these type of people. And so just uh, thank you very much. Those gifts are received um, with very grateful hearts um, indeed. Hey, before we get going this morning, wanted to do this at a specific time so those listening via podcast or on the live stream uh, could be up to date. Um, Tyler and Kayla, if you guys would just come up here uh, really quickly. Um, a few weeks back, um, Tyler was noticing some things singing uh, that weren't normal, kind of with his voice, hitting certain notes and stuff like that. And so through a couple doctor's visits, um, went and got checked out this Friday. 
and um, came back that Tyler has um, a cyst there on his vocal cords. And so the doctor used the analogy of kind of like trying to clap your hands with a pebble or a rock in between there. And so it doesn't work properly. The good news is, is that he was of no concern of the cyst. Um, it wasn't cancerous or anything like that. But it is something that is going to require um, for his body to heal. And so the doctor prescribed um, eight weeks of pretty much total silence of um, not speaking, definitely not singing, and stuff like that. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to take some time and pray for Tyler and Kayla. So if our board members could come up here, um, and if you would as well just stretch out your hand in faith. Um, we are praying, number one, that this cyst um, would heal and go away. We're praying for strength uh, for you guys because that's impossible with little kids and not speaking and stuff like that, but more than anything um, that God would work mightily in this time. And so Tyler, I anoint you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Kayla, I anoint you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Heavenly Father, we come before you right now and we lift Tyler and Kayla up to you. God, we are very thankful for doctors and the common grace of medicine for um, getting an answer and finding something out in this season of when uh, the body wasn't working properly. But God, what we are also asking right now in the mighty and in the strong name of Jesus Christ is we are asking that this cyst would heal and dissolve away. And we are asking that in faith, in the strong name of Jesus, how you teach us to pray. And so God, in this season, we are asking for peace and for strength in Tyler's heart and his mind. God, we are asking for the same peace and strength for Kayla as well as they navigate this season with their little kiddos. And God, what we are asking is that in this season, that Tyler would know that his work his identity is primarily not found in what he can provide for us in singing or his identity in that, but God, that it, his identity is who he is in you, Jesus, created on purpose and with a purpose. And so God, in this season of silence, we are praying and claiming that you would speak to him in a very, very mighty way. Holy Spirit, anoint them both for this journey ahead, and we pray all of these things in the strong and in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Would you guys show them some love this morning? Thank you guys for letting us do that this morning. And if you would, just um, on your prayer list, put them there and just uh, pray every day. And we're believing in faith, um, as God tells us, that when we pray and ask Him things, that He is more willing to answer prayer than we are even to pray. Amen? And so if you would, just put them on your prayer list this week. But hey, we are in our series, um, Rooted in Renegade, through the book of Acts. And just to catch you up really quickly as to where we have been, we have said that the early church and the early disciples and apostles are proclaiming the gospel in the face of persecution. And so we are seeing obstacles and we are seeing resistance to this message so far as we've journeyed in the book as we're reviewing. The second thing that we see is uh, we defined last week boldness. We said that in the passage that the word boldness kept popping up over and over and over and over again. And we define boldness, and I think we've got a slide for this. Boldness is acting by the power of the Holy Spirit on a deep conviction in the face of danger. 
that that is what boldness is. So that there is danger, there is persecution, there is opposition to this message, but they are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, standing in the face of that and still proclaiming the gospel. And then we said our big idea last week was this, that the power for boldness is given through prayer. The power for boldness is given through prayer. We saw and we have seen over and over in the book of Acts this um, sort of routine that the church constantly gathers together and is constantly praying and the Holy Spirit works in a mighty way. And so this past week, we had our week of bold prayer. And from Monday to Saturday, sometimes three times a day, the church was open and people came and they prayed. I know some people couldn't physically be here, but prayed as well. You're going to be hearing more about that and what God did in our midst through this past week. But one of the things that we are claiming as a New Testament church as we are looking at the book of Acts, which is sort of like our ancestry.com, if you will, of the church, that we want West Side. This is a good spot for an amen. You ready? Okay, you had enough coffee this morning, and you're in the sermon now, okay? That we want West Side to be a church marked by prayer. Amen? Prayer is not something that we do before we get to God's work. Prayer is God's work. It is God's work. This week, um, we see something a little bit different as those verses were read to you. Pretty heavy story about Ananias and Sapphira. But maybe uh, this will help. Um, I'm a fan of biographies. Um, I love reading about old dead guys and what God did through their life. And primarily, one of my great heroes is a guy by the name of John Wesley. And he's the founder of the Methodist movement and one of the key leaders in the first great awakening. I've been reading a biography by Ian Murray entitled Wesley and the Men That Followed Him. Wesley was ordained through the Church of England, which was a really, really big deal at the time. But Wesley saw many, many flaws within the Church of England. That the church had become an organization and not an organism, a living, breathing thing, that now there were these hierarchies and there was all of this bureaucracy and all of that. And his heart was so burdened that Wesley began to preach outside the church walls. Now, for us today, we don't understand how controversial that is because we live in a great nation that has the separation of church and state, which is a good thing because anytime those two things get in bed with each other, it is not a good thing, okay? And when Wesley stepped outside of the church walls and began to preach, he was literally held and tried for crimes because it was a legal crime to do that. That back then, the people had to come to the church. And Wesley's heart was so burdened for those outside the church. And so as he began to preach, sure enough, a movement began that we now know today as Methodists or Methodism. And it breaks my heart. So many Methodists don't even know the story about being a Methodist. But anyway, that's a different sermon, okay? He was so heartbroken over the division that began to happen. It was never Wesley's goal to start, quote-unquote, a new denomination. He never wanted to do that. What he wanted to do was actually unify the church. He was so troubled by this that he would go days, sometimes weeks, without eating and praying and fasting. 
And in the biography, it records one night he had a dream. And Ian Murray says this, Wesley tells of a dream that he had. And in the dream, he was ushered to the gates of hell. There he asks, are there Presbyterians here? Oh yes, came the answer. And then he asks, are there Baptists here? Any Episcopalians? Oh God, are there Methodists here? The answer was yes each time. Wesley, so heartbroken, then found himself distressed but raptured now to the gates of heaven. There, uh, Wesley quickly asked the same question. Are there any Methodists here, please? And the answer was a thunderous no. And Wesley was so heartbroken, he said no Who then is inside the gates of heaven? And the angel thundered and said, There are only Christians here. There are only Christians here. You see, that dream solidified in Wesley's heart and mind. And it was one of unity in the body of Christ. You see, what we have been seeing through the book of Acts is a unified church. There in those verses, verse 32, Luke is telling us something. But Luke is also using his words to now compare and contrast something. And I want to show you this in the text. Because listen, my job is not to come up with something and you go, oh man, I would have never have thought of that. My job is to show you what is right there in the black and white. It's there in the pages of your Bible. And in verse 32, it says this, and now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, unity. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Here it is. But they had everything in common. I mean, we see this glimpse, this beautiful window into a unified church. But I want you to notice a very important word in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually the first word. Um, but... Listen, I've been promising that I'm going to do a series called The Great Butts in the Bible, okay? And it's just, it's just the Bible, okay? It's just the Bible. Because when we know in our language, that means that there's a new thought that's getting ready to compare or contrast the previous thought. So we see all of this beautiful unity, but, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira. Luke is showing us that even in this perfect unity, even in this perfect glimpse, that there's not complete and total perfection. Hey, can I just say something really quick? Um, There is no such thing as a perfect church. Amen? I believe there are good churches. I believe there are biblical churches. I believe there are churches that are striving hard after Jesus. But do you know what a church is? A church is a bunch of sinners in close proximity to one another. Okay, so all the time, you know, I hear guys, man, we need to get back to the book of Acts, man, and the early church, man, where things were perfect. We don't need it. We need discipleship, man, just like in the book of Acts. Oh, just like when God killed people during the offering. (laughs) Right, because that's what we're studying today, right? But Luke is, is showing us something that even amidst this unity, 
There's something different that is happening. Look in verse 33 of chapter 4. It says this, And great grace was upon them all. That term in the original is actually mega grace. That there was mega grace there at the early church. But there was also something else. Look at what it says at the end of chapter 5. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Like the way that Luke is writing it, you know, Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. They usher out their bodies. And then Luke says, and great fear came upon the whole church. Uh, yeah, right? Yeah, I would think so. So what is Luke telling us? Well, here's really a main key. There at the end of uh, the verse in chapter 11, for the very first time in the book of Acts, we see the word church. Church is used for the very first time. This is a big deal. So we see this unity. We see this beautiful stuff. But we also see that something's happening internally. Because you see the resistance to the church has been outside of the church up until this time. But now Luke is showing us, uh-oh, something's happening internally. Um, this word church in the original, for the two of you that care, looks like this. And it's the word ecclesia in the original language. Some churches even actually name themselves um, ecclesia. And I'm like, that means your name is church church. But anyway, anyway, and, and, and the word ecclesia is, is really interesting. Um, it's not like a Bible word. It's not like invented just for the Bible. Ecclesia was actually used in the ancient times, um, and, and it means this. Ecclesia is a called out gathering of people. The church, please listen to me, the church is not a building. You did not come to church today. You came as the church to gather today. It is a people that are called out from the world who assemble and gather together. Listen, this is such a big deal that this is what was so heartbreaking um, during sort of COVID and the shelter in place. And, and we have the government and the world telling us that you can still be the church, just don't gather. Well... We can't do that. That's, that's not how this works. Because you see, we are a called out gathering of people. So in all of this compare and contrast, and we've been seeing persecution outside the ecclesia, but now there's something inside the ecclesia. And there was this unity, but then Ananias and Sapphira. What is Luke telling us? Because in this section, we are seeing opposition to the message. Or we are seeing in this section of Acts the threats to the church. And here's the big idea in the thesis today, and it's this. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is not external persecution, but internal division. Please listen to me. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is never outside the church. 
Anytime that ever happens, our dear brothers and sisters in North Korea, Africa, China, where they gather today in fear of their lives, there are actually two things that always cause church growth, and that is poverty and persecution. If you drop the church in a hostile environment where there is poverty and persecution, the church flourishes under those conditions. But always, throughout history, and as we even see in the book of Acts, the greatest threat to the church is inside the gathering. It is when the hostility and the division, or as we see today, the lying and the hypocrisy sets in. Listen, churches close their doors not because of external persecution, but when it comes to the color of the carpet, or you didn't say my last name right, or my great aunt sister so-and-so did this and said this, that's internal division. That is where the threat lies. And so today, Luke shows us a case study. We're going to see this authenticity in this guy named Barnabas where there's true unity taking place. And then he uses Ananias and Sapphira to show us how the threat happens on the inside. So the first point is this. Division dies where generosity grows. Look at Barnabas. Listen to me. Division dies where there is generosity. If there is generosity, division cannot live and thrive. If there is no generosity, then there will be division. And we get introduced to this guy named Barnabas. Um, we do this thing at Westside Men where we um, read the passage three times over and over, and somebody different reads it each time. And then we ask and say, what stood out to you each time? And it's just incredible to see a room of like 40 men with their Bibles open. Like, it's incredible. Ladies, you would think it's so hot seeing those guys in there with their Bibles. I mean, you would love seeing your husband all of that stuff. But anytime, one of the things that we say is when the Bible number one mentions a name, that's really important because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. So if your name is mentioned in the Bible, it's around for a really long time, okay? But not just the name, but also the descriptions of that person. Um, look at Barnabas there in verse 36. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This guy got a nickname. How cool is that? I mean, you know you're in when you get a nickname, right? Always in sports, on the team, something like that. Um, when I played baseball, and I didn't play very long, my career was very short-lived, okay? Um, my nickname was the Statue of Liberty, because I never swung at the ball. I would just always get hit. I would always get hit and take my base. And I was like, dude, my average is I'm batting a 1,000, man. This is great, right? But you know you're in when you get a nickname. This guy got a nickname from the apostles, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And then check this out. A Levite, a native of Cyprus. Um, here we're introduced to Barnabas, and we see him all through Scripture Actually, in Acts chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul is converted, Paul tries to join the gathering, the ecclesia, 
And people are like, pump the brakes, bro. You've been killing Christians. You can't come in here. No way. Barnabas is the one who stands up and says, no, no, no. I can vouch for him. This man loves Jesus. This man is changed. Barnabas literally becomes Paul's companion on all of his missionary journeys. And Luke is showing us that a life marked by generosity looks like Barnabas' life. And listen, there's just a, a, a few quick things. The first thing is this. Generosity is supernatural. Look at verse 32. This is unbelievable. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That sentence is absolutely supernatural. Everybody, the full number, were all together of one heart and one soul. Listen, you can't get anybody to agree on anything nowadays, whether it's the Republican Party, Democrat, I mean, any of that stuff. Even if they say they're in the quote-unquote same party, they still disagree with each other. But here, everybody had a supernatural spirit of unity. Why is that supernatural? Um, well, let's just do a case study. Anybody been around a toddler recently? Yeah. Um, please, where did the toddler learn that when somebody reaches for my goldfish, I turn into a demon or jello and just whine in the floor? I don't share any of them. These are mine. Like our kids growing up never saw me reach for the remote and then Courtney go, no, that's my. Like you don't have to teach kids that. Why? Because by very nature, we are selfish human beings. And I never, listen, one of the themes that we've constantly studied in Acts is this, is that the Christian life is a supernatural life. You don't try on your own, and then when you're down in the dumps, then the Holy Spirit fills you. No, no, no. Every day in the Spirit is a supernatural life. Generosity is supernatural. The second thing is this, generosity is sacrificial. Look at verse 34. It says these words. There was not a needy person among them. Um, just in your neighbor's Bible, lean over and circle the word needy there in the passage. Just make sure they're awake and we're all good. A needy person among them. One of the early church fathers said, it is not a sin to have wealthy, rich people in your church. But it is a problem when you have poor people in your church. Do you understand the difference? What we see here in Acts is that the ecclesia was devoted to one another, but it was based on needs. It was, are you hungry? Do you need a place to live? Are you guys not surviving? What I have is yours because we are in this family together. And I think the lines get blurred for us and we don't see that type of sacrificial generosity because we are very confused about wants and needs. So you see the lifestyle of somebody else and it grows discontentment in your heart and you say, well, I don't have the dog and the trailer and the side-by-side -side, or I don't have the house or I don't have, the, I don't have any of that. 
That's not what's taking place here. What's taking place is that there were no needs among them. And it's actually a mark of the church. We see later on in the New Testament in Galatians, it says this. So then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, to everybody. Let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. And and look at what Barnabas does. He has some land, verse 37. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. Think about this. I mean, even nowadays, if you own land or property, that's a considerable asset that you own because God's not making any more land, right? That's a big deal. Imagine how much more so back then if you owned land. In the way the verse reads, it was as if Barnabas didn't even have to think about it. It was like word spread that there was a need within the ecclesia. And he was like, well, I mean, I've got that 40 acres with, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll just sell that. And then he lays the money down. That cost him something. It was something that was his that he then sold and gave it freely. Um, one of the things that we teach here at Westside is a lot of times people are confused when it comes to this idea of tithing or giving or offerings or anything like that. And, and, and can I say something really quickly? When I first became pastor here, um, I think one of the failures of my ministry in the beginning was I never talked about money. I never asked for it or anything like that because I was so afraid of somebody going, ah, oh, there's another church. This, um, and please listen, that's a fail. You know why? If I preached like Jesus preached, one sermon a month would be completely devoted to money. Do you know why that's such a big deal? Because money measures what we love. Jesus simply says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is as well. And so if you say, Jesus, I love you, I'm for your kingdom, Jesus' response is, let's balance your checkbook together. But what's so interesting is our theology of generosity doesn't come from a bare minimum standard. I don't see that. What I do see is Ananias and Sapphira start calculating like, I can keep this much and I can... Barnabas sells the land and freely gives it. Because that sounds like Jesus. Tim Keller says, um, Jesus didn't tithe his blood. Jesus, while dying on the cross, did not say, that's good enough. That'll get me over the line. Jesus said, it is finished. And so generosity always at its core is supernatural and it is sacrificial. But the last thing that I see is this, is that generosity is sincere. It's sincere. Look at what he does. He laid it at the apostles' feet. Do you know what he didn't do? He did not label that gift and tie a string around it and say, now listen here, apostles, come on, come in here. Now, I sold that land, and I sold that land. I'm going to tell you something. This is where that money is going to go, and if I don't get that plaque with my name on it, I'm going to have to take that offering back now, okay? He just lays it at the apostles' feet. 
Because that denotes and tells me that in the early church, under the banner of unity, there was trust, there was sincerity. I mean, look at the mark of the early church, that they are radically generous. Um, If you look at the sign behind me, that was one of our marks for a vision series that we had, is we want to be a supernaturally, radically, sacrificial, sincere, giving church. Because you know why? I believe Christians now in the 21st century, in 2021, will stand out, not because of the Bible doctrine that they know, not because they hold picket signs declaring what they are against, but I believe believe Christians will be light in the darkness by the generosity that they show to an unbelieving world. And you need to know something that you were a part of a church that believes that. This summer we had our um, leadership meeting where we went over the church finances and the previous year we gave away, gave away in benevolence $32,409. We gave that away to other organizations. Yeah, we can clap for that. That is good. And do you know what else? I'm not satisfied until that number grows every single year. Proverbs says, He who holds grows all the poorer, but he who scatters gains wealth. It is a mark of a church is to be supernaturally generous. But one of the things that we've said in this series is, The book of Acts is a beautiful picture corporately of how a church, the called out ones who gather together, should function. But we learn this, that a corporate picture only works as individuals walk with Jesus. So follow me. Along this train of thought, If Westside is going to be a supernaturally generous church, then here's an application question for you. What if everyone at Westside was as generous as me? How generous would we be? Not, no, 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 no. Not Bill, or not, sorry if your name's Bill. Um, Not, don't, don't go like, well, I know it'll be covered there over, no, 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 no. What if you were the standard of generosity? That's what I see Luke describing to us. He's showing us that this life is supernatural. And very simply put, here's the sentence. Giving is the gauge of gratitude. It is. If you say you're grateful, if you say that you've received grace, if you say that the grace of Jesus Christ has changed your life, Giving is the gauge of your time, of your talents, and of your treasure. Of your treasure. Listen, division happens. Division happens when that is absent. And that's what we see now in the second point, and it's this. Division thrives where hypocrisy hides in Ananias and Sapphira. I need to say something about these verses because they're heavy. You're like, goodness gracious, mega grace. And then like God takes these people like what in the world is going on, man? I thought this was grace. I thought it was finished. What's going on here? Um, I would defer to N.T. Wright as he says these words. You see, we don't like these kinds of stories, but we can't have it both ways. 
if we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to the bullying authorities, makes converts left and right, and lives lives of astonishing uh, property-sharing generosity, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the very temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. If you invoke the power of the Holy One, the one who will eventually right all wrongs and sort out all cheating and lying, he may just decide to do some of that work in advance. You see, we can't have it only nice and neat. If we are the church of the living God, as Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What is this about Ananias and Sapphira that's so serious? Um, well, it's a word. And the word is hypocrisy. I mean, that's what we see. Um, in the original language, this is what it looks like. Jesus uses this word over and over and over again. Um, you can actually, in Matthew 23, the entire chapter is devoted to the religious hypocrites. But the word comes from ancient Greece. And so when actors were acting on stage, it wasn't like Marvel movies now where they've got a green screen and they can do whatever they want. It was only the person on the stage. And one person played multiple characters. And so they would have masks. They would wear masks. Isn't it cool how appropriate this is that we're studying this and it's Halloween? I know, right? It's just crazy, okay? Just follow me with this, all right? So they would literally wear masks, and, and we can see a lot of those ancient masks and everything like that. But what is a definition, a good definition of a hypocrite? Because oftentimes people are like, well, it's just somebody who doesn't, you know, practice what they preach. Uh, kind of. Listen, it's not somebody who is just making mistakes in stumbling in their walk with Jesus. Because, hello, that's everybody, okay? Nobody's perfectly following Jesus. So then what is a hypocrite? Because, listen, if you're a non-Christian, this is your silver bullet. This is what you use all the time to argue against Christianity. I hear all the time, man, I don't need to be a part of no church, man. Church is just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And my response is always, yes, come join us. Because you're a hypocrite too, okay? But what is a good definition? Well, um, this is actually what your kid side kids are learning today. A hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be what they never intend to be. That's a hypocrite. It's a mask. It's a false life. It is, I want this appearance but I have no desire for that to be a ruling conviction in my life. Yeah, I might be a part of the church. I might do, I mean, Ananias and Sapphira, it almost looks like they wanted a nickname too. It's like they saw Barnabas sell the land and was like, Barnabas got a nickname. I want a nickname. You know what? We can sell, but we don't really want to give the money. We'll say that this is what we sold, and then maybe we'll get a cool nickname like Thor or something really cool like that. It would be awesome, right? 
But listen, they had no intentions, no intentions of really living a life of generosity. This is so serious. Please don't miss this, Westside. That Jesus' harshest words in the New Testament, the words of Jesus that he speaks in the New Testament, the harshest and hardest are to religious hypocrites by far. Jesus is so tender and kind to the woman caught in the act of adultery or someone troubled by demons or to the drug addict or to the liar or to the murderer. Jesus is tender to those people in truth and in grace. But the moment that you pretend to be what you never intend to be and prostitute the very living God, that is what arises a fire in Jesus that is a holy discontent. Now, think about today. Many of your kids are going to be Iron Man, Spider-Man, all of that good stuff. And they knock on doors and they pretend to be what they never intend to be. And then they get treats. They get blessed. And then they go home and they complain that they didn't get a full-size candy bar. John Piper says these words. Do you put a costume on say the right thing, hope to get blessed, then go home and complain? Is that Halloween or is that Sunday? Internal hypocrisy. Internal division. This is by far the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ than anything outside of it. We have to live lives of purity and holiness. And holiness doesn't mean sinlessness. It just means you sin less in your relationship and pursuit of Jesus Christ. So what does this look like? Religious hypocrites use God to hide their rebellious hearts. That's what's so dangerous about it. It's that you use the very commands of God to have an appearance in your life that you even have a relationship with God. But in reality, what Jesus would say to the Pharisees, on the outside, you look like you're all put together. But on the inside, you are filled with dead dead men's bones. And what's so dangerous is that we can come into the ecclesia And start to learn the language. How are you doing? Fine. God is good, didn't He? All the time. You even start carrying your Bible because everybody else carries their Bible. You realize that when you serve every once in a while in nursery, people kind of start to leave you alone and stuff like that. Like, And you start to learn the lingo. But in all reality, there's no real intentions to love and have a relationship in Jesus to be Lord of your life. What does this hypocrisy look like? Very quickly, this is what it looks like in the text. Division thrives where hypocrisy hides. Here are the three things very quickly. Hypocrisy steals. That's the whole key to the passage. Look at what Peter says to him in verse 2. 
And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart and you lied to the Holy Spirit? The reality is this, is that it was always technically their land. But this is where we understand the principle of ownership versus stewardship. You see, we as Christians believe we own nothing, but we are stewards of everything. Your house, your money, your time, that is not yours. God has given you that as a gift, and the gift for us is to steward it. But the moment that hypocrisy creeps in, it says, this is, this is my schedule, this is mine, and then I will do with it what I please. The second thing is this, hypocrisy is satanic. You're like, goodness, man, that's strong language. Well, look at verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart? Satan would love nothing more. The powers of hell would love nothing more than for you to live a hypocritical life that you have the appearance of loving Jesus, but in reality, your heart and your mind are so far from him that we then ourselves begin to believe the very lies. That's why most of the letters written in the New Testament are to churches and to believers, and they say things like this. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's not to scare us. That's to assure us that we are. And what is one of the number one ways? Generosity. Test yourself in this area and see. The third thing is this. Hypocrisy spreads. It says that Ananias with his wife, Sapphira. It shows that when you see somebody else living a hypocritical life, we are so sinful that we use that to justify our own actions. So we know that this person did this and said this and did that. And so you know what? I mean, my life's not that bad. I mean, look at her life. over. The... And what we do is we then begin to justify and listen to me. The moment that that happens, you begin to believe the very lies that you are telling yourself. And that's what Paul says in Romans 1. It becomes so dangerous because you're convinced of yourself at that moment. This is how hypocrisy enters in to the church. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is not external persecution, but it's internal division. In closing, as the band comes and leads us in a time of response, do you know what's so interesting to me as I sat with this story, the holiness of God. Remember what I said about names? Names are really important in the Bible. And the names back then always meant something. You were named a certain name, probably because it was a family name or something like that. Do you know what Ananias' name means? It means God has been gracious to me. And some of you are in the room saying, look at how harsh God is. I can't believe. That's not the God. That's not a... 
the last thing that Ananias heard when Peter said his name, Ananias, is he heard the very words, God is gracious to you. It is the goodness and kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And today, if you are within earshot of this, and there is any hypocrisy in your life, God is working right now in His generosity and in His grace saying, don't go down that path. That path only ends in destruction. And the greatest threat to the church is not outside it, but always inside it. So the guiding question that we've had each and every week is, what is the Spirit saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? I don't know how you need to kill the hypocrisy in your life, but I know through this passage and all through the Word that generosity is the gauge to do that. And what's our motive? Oh, please don't let it be fear. Oh, please, listen, if it's guilt, if guilt motivates you today, I'll say that you'll make it to about Thursday. And then the hypocritic cycle will continue again. Do you know what is always the motivation in the New Testament? The gospel. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. It is the grace of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you today so grateful for your grace. And God, please let our lives show it. Let this church not be a country club or something like that, but let it be a living, breathing group of called out people who gather together at the first day of the week on the day that Jesus rose from the grave to celebrate and to sing and to say our God is not dead, but He is alive, that the grave is empty and that the throne is occupied and that we bring our gifts and we lay them down and we say, this is not mine, but it's a gift that you have given me. And then after we hear your word and after we partake in your elements, we scatter and we go back out in the world to be generous again. God, let that be Westside. And if there is any hypocrisy in our lives, and the reality is, is there is to some degree every person God, if we cannot say with the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. God, I believe that there are some people in this room who are heading down a dangerous path that they themselves are self-deceived, that they're going through the routine of religiosity. God, break our hearts with grace today. And may we see the beauty of the cross. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and the precious and the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.